This is John Holtzman, and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, our weekly look at how the new world we live in actually works. And it's great to be back with you. I am momentarily at my desk. Uh, I'm just back from a wonderful week in Egypt, where I got to see all the things you saw when you were an eight-year-old in your book. I got to wake up with the sun shining on me as I entered the Valley of the Kings. I got to see the pyramids in Saqqara. I got to travel down the Nile, or actually up the Nile, um, toward Cairo when we started at Aswan for three glorious days. And I've seen almost every major temple you can see. It was more of a journey than a relaxed holiday, but one I'll never forget. And to see inside a tomb the actual colors still on um, the wall from about three to 4,000 years ago was something I'll never forget. And so the family had a wonderful break, and Sarah and the kids enjoyed that. Um, I'm going to start with a story from ancient Egypt that I think has relevance to today's topic, which is history's law of unintended consequences, how one thing happens and it leads to very different sorts of outcomes. And this is a thing political risk people you run into all the time and we run into in life all the time. But there's a great story of about 1350 BC, so 3,300 years ago, about the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten. He was the first man that we know of of significance who believed in monotheism, in one god. And of course, Egypt has a history of many gods. My favorite, Sobek, the crocodile god. There was Horus, there was Ra, there was Isis, there was Osiris. There's a panoply of gods, much as was true in Greece, but Akhenaten thought there was only one true god, the Aten, the sun god. And so he undid centuries and indeed millennia worth of Egyptian religion, did away with the many gods, and came to worship only the one true god, the Aten. And in fact, he was under such heat for doing this that he left Karnak in the south, Thebes as it was known then, in the south of Egypt and set up his own city away from the, the priests so that he could worship the Aten, the one god. It was at, um, he called it Akadatatan, the city of At of the Aten. We call it Amarna. And he went out in the middle of the desert and started his own city. And the religion flourished, but only for about 20 years and did not outlast his death. And it was the first real effort at monotheism. But the problem for Akhenaten is that there was a political motive to doing this. He decided to worship the Aten, partly because a lot of his money was going to the various priests of Sobek and Osiris and Isis and Ra, and they were becoming more and more powerful. And so to undo that and give him greater power in worshiping the one God, he no longer had to pay for the priests of the many gods, which is a political risk move. So now I'm beginning to understand the guy. And then secondly, he said only he could properly worship the Aten. So he became the only priest, so all the money flowed back to him. So there was very much, this was a political power grab. But the unintended consequence of the failure of this and his heir, there were a couple people in between, but his ultimate heir was his son, Tutankhamun, King Tut, as we know him, his original name was Tutankhamun, meaning the follower of the Aten, and they changed it to Amun, Amun, who was one of the major Egyptian gods, because when he is a boy king, comes to the throne, the priests regain power, move the pharaoh back, the boy king, back to Thebes, and actually have more power out of this power grab by Akhenaten than they did to begin with. The power of the pharaoh is diminished because Akhenaten failed in his power grab, thus giving the very people he didn't like ever more power until it led to the ultimate collapse 
of this late dynasty period. And then uh, Akhenaten was the 18th dynasty of pharaohs. Can you imagine 18 separate dynasties? That's how old this place was. And this story struck me as very relevant because power grabs all often have very diverse and, and strange consequences. And there are three things showing up in our modern world that kind of mirror Akhenaten's problem. First, we see in Brazil the failed coup effort of some of the supporters of, of Jair Bolsonaro, the outgoing far-right president. And this always struck me as the case that the mainstream media, again, the ever-wrong FT, the ever-wrong mainstream media, was whining about the fact that there was going to be some sort of coup and would Bolsonaro give way to power gracefully or not. And bottom line, it appeared to me that people didn't understand anymore how a coup worked. To have a coup, a real coup, a real chance at gaining power, you need force. That's what a coup means. You need the army, the intelligence services, the power ministries to be behind you. And there was no sign of this happening in Brazil. And so I kept wondering what sort of coup they were talking about, that a bunch of protesters wearing flags, uh, throwing rocks at things, drinking too much, are going to take over a country as complicated and diverse as Brazil? Well, hardly. Unless you have the military, unless you have the power ministries, the intelligence services, uh, the hard men behind a, a, a government behind you, there can be no coup. And there was absolutely no sign in the Brazilian election of, of the power ministries siding with Bolsonaro. In fact, quite the opposite. The military ran Brazil between 1964 and 85 and went from being the most respected institution in the country to the least respected institution. This was an inept, corrupt group of military officers who tortured people, led to deaths, uh, were generally reviled. And once they lost power in 1985 or ceded power to democracy again in 1985, they have resolutely stayed out of politics. And not unsurprisingly, their reputation in Brazil has grown and grown and grown because of this. So their entire success and rebirth are dependent on them staying out of politics, them staying out of the coup business, which they've resolutely done since 1985. So in other words, for a very long time, almost 40 years now, two generations, they've stayed out. And there was no sign of any of the generals being close enough to Bolsonaro to want to pull off some sort of organized coup. And without there being this hard men behind you, any plan, and, the, and what happened was more, it was every bit as much a riot, much like January 6th, for the United States as a plan, uh, a riot that got out of hand. That's what happened in Brazil. Yes, they wanted to take power in some vague sort of way, but without a plan, without the military, without the intelligence services, that's a coup that's going to fail. And indeed, the uprising lasted under a day before it was put down as Lula, the once and now again president of Brazil, sensibly enough called in the federal ministries to take over Brasilia, which is an, like D.C. is an independent entity. And this was put down almost immediately. The unintended consequences of this, though, the political risk unintended consequences are immense. It showed, first of all, that there isn't a coup, that, that the far right can always have up its sleeve a coup so that they can undo democracy whenever they don't like the outcome. In fact, you see just the opposite, that this pathetic effort at doing anything has just shown how weak and disorganized they are, that far from having the military behind them, they're just another disorganized Brazilian political party. Second, it showed that beyond being poor losers, that all kinds of moderates have fled to Lula. Lula barely won election by a much closer margin than was thought, under two percentage points. He won clear and clean, but very close. 
and didn't have a majority in the fractious Italian, or sorry, the fractious Brazilian parliament. And now he has every moderate conservative fleeing to him saying, we condemn the extrajudicial efforts of the far right in Bolsonaro, and we ourselves are now in favor of working with, at least on a case-by-case -case basis, Lula. So it discredits the far right from having the army behind them, and it strengthens Lula, which is the exact opposite of what the Brazilian rioters had in mind in the first place. And then lastly, it discredits. If the army is held up as being above politics and Lula is strengthened, the far right, and particularly Bolsonaro, are discredited. We have yet to know how much Bolsonaro actually knew about what was going on, but what we do know is that while he's being treated for abdominal injuries that he sustained in the uh, attempted assassination of him before his election, which has led to a number of operations. He was very gravely wounded, and he's gone to Florida for an operation. It isn't clear what he knew and what he didn't know. But what is known is that he has sulked and not gone along with congratulating Lula as the new president and shuffled off to Florida. His grip on the far right is receding, and this will continue with that process. Whether he knew about it or not, he's the figurehead of the far right at present, and he will get a good share of the blame for this, whether it's deserved historically or not. History is not always immediately fair. Although I believe in karma, the Indian notion of karma, that there's ultimate justice, that takes a long time. This is a short-term issue. So there are three unintended consequences that come out of the Brazilian failed coup. One, the army is upheld as being above politics, so there are going to be no more coups in the future, which is what I predicted before the Brazilian election, another political risk call we got right, and the always wrong FT and many of my colleagues uh, in the political risk business got wrong because the army and the power ministries were not going to do anything. Yes, there were minor elements of the police that were behind Bolsonaro, but very minor and certainly not enough to manage the coup of a state as complicated as Brazil. So the power ministries stayed out of politics. Second, these institutions have made and have strengthened Lula, and the backlash has strengthened Lula with everybody who isn't on the far right flocking to him under the Democratic banner when he was in a very weak position. He's in a somewhat stronger position now as a result of all this. And then third, that Bolsonaro himself has been tainted by the brush of extrajudicial efforts that fail. He's not only a strong man who looks weak, but he's a man who's no longer even in his own country and is losing control of the far right. So that's an awful lot of unintended consequences to come out of Brazil. And broadly, they're for the good, because Lula, with any sort of majority and any sort of stability, as Brazil looks more stable, as its institutions have held up to this stress test, which is what a coup is, a stress test, remarkably well, this is a country that has abundant natural resources, that if ever it could get it to act together in the world at the moment with supply chains crashing, these resources, these resources are going to be needed more than ever. So Brazil becomes a possible buy for businesses out there right now because of what's happened. And that is the biggest and most positive unintended consequence of them all. And then secondly, uh, looking at Akhenaten and his power grab, which led to actually the very people he hated, the priests having more power, and looking at the far-right coup in Brazil, which led to Lula having more power, we can look at the Indo-Pacific as the other possible area where unintended consequences have reared their head. Uh, rather than thinking Xi Jinping is some sort of genius, and an American analyst in particular, always are overrating the, the sagacity of our enemies, when we're actually in the 20th century, as Ronald Reagan got right, the history is littered with the bones of our enemies. The German general staff thought the Americans too decadent to beat them. 
as did the Japanese Imperial Army and Navy, as did Hitler, as did Mussolini, as did Stalin, as did Mao. And yet here we still sit, a free society having outlasted the lot of them. Because there are unintended consequences to what you do, and our enemies also make mistakes all the time. We have to look at their strengths, and we have to look at their weaknesses. As you know, as a realist, I have Edmund Burke's mantra, to make the world better, you have to see it as it is warts and all. And warts and all means sometimes our enemies also are stupid and do silly things. The difference is, in, in, in democratic societies, we publicize our mistakes that Joe Biden forgot and left documents out in the garage. Uh, that's publicized, but Xi Jinping getting zero COVID wrong took an awful long time to see because it's hidden behind a phalanx of security minders in the Chinese Communist Party. And I think Xi and his foreign policy have been catastrophic for China. Rather than following Deng Xiaoping, who was a genius, who took China from being a small, peasant-driven, inward-looking country traumatized by the mass murder of Mao, the Ted Bundy of politics, Rather than, than taking them from there and leading them to great power status, Deng did this following a very different foreign policy, a softly, softly foreign policy, where Deng basically said, and I remember talking to Chinese embassy folks when I worked in Washington, and over every issue that was contentious, they would reach the same conclusion. We'll uh, drop this for now, and we'll revisit this in 20 or 30 years. And I knew what they meant. They meant that if China can maintain peace and not enrage its neighbors, and it grows at 8% for the next 30 years, and the United States grows at 2% for the next 30 years, China will be ever relatively stronger, will be in a position in a generation and a half to actually challenge the United States for primacy in the Indo-Pacific, where most of the world's future risk and most of the world's future economic reward are, this is where the growth is going to be coming from, which is why my firm focuses on it like a laser beam. If this is the situation, we will just revisit everything in 30 years from a position of relative strength, but we're not going to tangle with you now. And this was Deng Xiaoping's very successful foreign policy. Unfortunately, Xi Jinping has Stockholm Syndrome. He's fallen in love with his kidnappers, and the very people who, as a princeling, tormented his family, sent him out to live in a cave in the countryside, I kid you not, as he was re-educated during the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong and, and the crazies around him, which were forever more centralized government in China. He's done that. He's done away with, with Deng's more collegial standard of government, where there wouldn't be a new Mao, and he's repositioned himself as easily with his third term as party leader, as the most powerful leader of China since Mao. He's adopted Mao's tactics, the very man who tormented his family, the Stockholm Syndrome case. But as a radical like Mao, he is impatient with history. He is a Robespierreist. He is not some sort of person working within the system to, over time, change the system to his advantage. And that was Deng. Rather, Xi is impatient with history and is trying to hurry it along. And if there's ever a lesson of history's unintended consequences, it's that you can't hurry it along. And by doing this, he's picked fights with literally everyone in Asia all at once. Just this last couple of weeks, there's been movement again on the line of actual control, the undemarcated border between India and China, with China pushing ever further along the Himalaya. And of course, this throws India into the arms of the United States. The unintended consequence of China showing its teeth is paradoxically to move the entire region into the arms of America, which ought to be the last thing that Xi Jinping wants and is very good news 
for the United States indeed. So by reminding the Indians the fact that the Chinese are bullies on their own border, this makes the quadrilateral initiative, the mini NATO, set up in the region by Shinzo Abe with great power Japan, great power India, Anglosphere member Australia, and superpower America, forming the nucleus of this anti-Chinese expansionistic club. This becomes ever more powerful and real the more the Chinese bully the Indians. This should be the last thing that Xi is trying to do, and yet he doesn't seem to understand this, and that's good news for the United States. It is a tremendous foreign policy era. His radical Robespierreist impatience with history, history will bite you back if you don't understand it. Certainly, that's the lesson I've learned in my life from Akhenaten on to now. And so the Indians are now more on side. Australia, because of being bullied by the Chinese over merely asking, we should figure out the origins of COVID, the Chinese became immediately hysterical because obviously they're guilty of propagating the virus. I don't mean causing it, but once it was there, once the lab leak was out there, leaving Wuhan locked down while they opened up international flights. In other words, if China's going to get sick, the rest of the world's going to get sick. If China's going to take a hit, the rest of the world's going to take a hit. That's, as Jack McCoy would say in Law and Order, manslaughter, depraved indifference. And that's what I accuse the Chinese government of regarding COVID. That the Australians merely say we ought to look into this led to the Chinese going hysterical and starting a trade war with Australia, which provides endless abundant natural resources for an ever-hungry Chinese manufacturing base. They didn't care. They slapped tariffs on all kinds of goods, barley, wheat, things like this, uh, that they use copper things that they use in Australia for export to China, merely for having the temerity to ask where COVID came from. So what does Australia do? It signs a defense pact with its Anglosphere colleagues, the UK and the US. And so now the base at Darwin on the northern tip of Australia is going to be open to American Marines, giving them the chance to resupply within the region, which is hugely strategically important for the United States. So again, Xi's impatience and bullying have led Australia to be even more in the arms of the United States. And this is true over and over again about the region. The last case this is true of, and a very important one, is by bullying the Japanese over the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea, Japan, which has had a constitution imposed on it by Douglas MacArthur, uh, the, the Japanese revere, uh, they're the only ones left to revere MacArthur. What a catastrophe he was strategically. But they do, and he was a very good viceroy. He didn't understand American politics, but boy, he did understand Japanese politics. And by keeping the emperor and imposing this, he merely became the latest reforming Tokugawa shogunate person, the new shogun who reforms by doing land reform and imposing this constitution upon them, which they have yet to change or amend in any way. And the key clause is that Japan would be pacifist. It would not have an army in the future. And the Japanese have kind of gotten around this over the years since with the self-defense force, uh, which in essence is their army, but they've spent very low levels of GDP upon it, about 1%, kind of German-level spending uh, in Japan. But because of the Chinese bullying in the East China Sea and because of the Chinese making noises throughout the region, and remember, the Indo-Pacific, again, is where all the future economic growth are, is in the world and also where all the future political risk is. And the Japanese know the Chinese. They've been, they've been competitors since time began. As the Japanese see this, they have moved ever closer into the American orbit. 
And now they've announced uh, Fumio Kishida, the prime minister and the protege of Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated recently, who was really the great deep thinker about the region of the last couple of years in terms of leadership. Um, and Kishida has just gone to Britain to sign a defense deal with the British. And at the same time, the new Japanese budget calls for a doubling in the next five years, a doubling of Japanese defense spending, given its immense economy. This is a significant amount of money. And they want to double the defense spending to 2% of GDP and affect the NATO norm they want to spend on defense. So Japan has been remilitarized by Xi's bullying. So what's happened because of the bullying? It, the unintended consequences of, of Xi's ruinous foreign policy are that India, because of bullying, is now thrown into the arms of the quadrilateral initiative in the United States. Australia just signed the AUKUS Defense Pact with Anglosphere, United States, and UK. And Japan is thrown in closer into the arms of the United States with a doubling of its defense spending. All this is tremendous news for the West, who did nothing to deserve it. It's due to the stupidities and mistakes of Xi. The problem with autocracy is there's no one left to tell you you're mad. One of the best things about my office is that people often say to me, John, God love you. We wouldn't have an office without you. You're our front man, our Mick Jagger out in the world. We've made every call correctly. I know what's coming then. But you're wrong about this. And the fact that they can say that, that they feel comfortable in saying that, that their jobs aren't on the line, means that I hear bad news. I hear feedback and pushback to the things that I think. That doesn't mean I think they're always right, but it's a check on unfettered power. The problem with unfettered power is that then psychology, as Hans Morgenthau, that great realist said, becomes a huge factor. If there's no one left to check Xi or say he's wrong, then we have to worry about the man's individual psychology and the fact that as a fallible human, he can make mistakes. And boy, he's made a doozy of a series of them out in the Indo-Pacific, where because he's been impatient with history, the unintended consequence is the United States is in a better strategic position in the Indo-Pacific than it's been in in quite some time. So let's remember the lesson of Akhenaten. History is full of unintended consequences that we have to follow. And that just because you want one thing doesn't mean you don't end up with something very different indeed. I'm just off now. I'm home for just a couple days, literally, to, you know, empty the suitcase and do some laundry, maybe get my hair cut. And then I'm off for a week's worth of fascinating meetings in the UK. And I will let you know how those meetings go um, in the near future. Um, and we'll do a trip report, which are always fun, after John Goodnight, my able chief of staff and good friend, go off to the Langham, my favorite hotel in the world, for a week and see almost everybody who matters in British politics to look at what's going on from that perch. So I look forward to giving you a trip report late next week. But I really wanted to do this history's law of unintended consequences because it's something we run into every day and has a very funny mix of humor and tragedy about it. So think of Akhenaten when you think of this and my lovely trip sailing up the Nile. Hope everybody's great and have a wonderful weekend and we'll see you next week.